News Talk 1110-993 WBT, hour number two of the program, the Pete Callender Show. Welcome. Thanks a lot for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. If you'd like to weigh in on any of the stuff we're chatting about, it's 704-570-1110 or 1-800-WBT-1110. Also, you can hit me up, Pete, at the Pete Callender Show or on the Twitter machine. It is at Pete Callender. So uh, the Department of Education up in Virginia has on its website several examples of its promotion of critical race theory, despite what the gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe has said, that they do not teach this. It's not part of the curriculum. And he has been saying this throughout the campaign, but now uh, Andrew Miller at Fox News went to the Department of Education's website and found a whole bunch of examples of it. One being a presentation from 2015, which was when Terry McAuliffe was governor, and it encourages teachers to, quote, embrace critical race theory in order to re-engineer attitudes and belief systems. And that second part, re-engineering attitudes and belief systems, this is the point. This is the point, right? A lot of times, people, when they get into an argument about critical race theory with somebody of the left, they find themselves being forced to define what critical race theory is. I think I've uh, explained this before. I used to go through this with leftists as well, but it's pointless because the, the purpose of them challenging you on the definition of what CRT is, is not to have an understanding of what CRT is. It's to attack you for not knowing what CRT is. That's the whole point. And if you do know what CRT is, then the fallback attack is that, well, it's a, you know, esoteric uh, uh, legal course at Harvard from the 70s. And it's dismissed. The only reason, so essentially it is, uh, it's a way to run out the clock. All of these arguments that we have, they come with, uh, they come with a, a time limit, right? If you're on Facebook or Twitter or you're, um, you're you know, on social media, I'm assuming, right, you're having these arguments. Or if you're in person, you're having a discussion, eventually the person will walk away, right? There's a time limit here. You don't have all day. So the longer they can keep you bogged down in trying to define what CRT is and is not, then the more, well, then it, the least likely it is, that, uh, less likely it is that then they're going to have to defend some of these programs and uh, lessons that are, in fact, being taught, that are, in fact, informed by CRT. CRT is just a heading. It's, it's an umbrella, right, under which all of these other offshoots arise. Uh, it's, it's this wellspring. Now, it's not the original, right? CRT comes from critical legal studies, or CLS. That was its precursor, critical legal studies. And, and before that, it was just critical theory, and before that, it was known as neo-Marxism. And that's not my word for it. That's the person who created these concepts. That's his word for it. And his name is Antonio Gramsci. G-R-A-M-S-C-I. Is there a second I on there? He's Italian. I forget if there's two I's or not. But this fella, he was a full-blown communist. He was an Italian communist. 
and thrown in prison. I think I've covered this briefly in the past, but like you can go through all of these historical footnotes and, and run the historical record, but they don't care. It's not the point. The, the leftists today do not care about the origins of CRT. It's not the point because, and by the way, CRT then morphs into intersectionality, right? Where everybody who has any kind of um, status as an oppressed, they all intersect at the one point of oppression. And the oppressors are the ones that all of the different uh, identities need to band together to overthrow because the oppressors are the ones with the power, which is sort of the, the, the line of thinking, right, that you can't be racist unless you have the power, right? That's all part of this school of thought. You have that. You also have anti-racism, Ibram X. Kendi. And yes, I do have his tweet from yesterday <laughs> where he essentially just blew up his entire body of work with a single tweet. <laughs> Couldn't have it to a better guy. Um, but this is the guy. Kendi is the guy that Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, not only did they pay him somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five hundred dollars a minute to speak to CMS leadership, but they also took almost a year to read his book, to study his book, part of their book club for principals, for senior leadership, for all of these CMS employees. Okay. So I'm going to explain real quick what the, uh, what the debate tactic is that we have seen. And I've referenced this before, but if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. It's called Mott and Bailey. Mott and Bailey. And it comes from the um, it comes from the old uh, uh, medieval times. Mott and Bailey Castle. Okay? It's a, it's a fortification. Okay? So you have a keep, like a tower, you know, made of stone and all of that. Right? And that's usually situated up on the top of the hill. Right? It's fortified and um, it's, it's, it's uh, easier to defend. It's way up there, right? So it's strong. It's impenetrable, right? And that's on a piece of ground, that hill. It's called the Mott, okay? Not a moat, but a Mott. A moat would be around the Mott, okay? But the Mott, M-O-T-T-E is how you spell that, the Mott. The Bailey is the, is the area all around the, um, uh, the bottom of that. So it's less defensible, okay? Mott and Bailey. So in terms of rhetoric and in terms of debate, people say stuff that is difficult to defend. That's the Bailey. Okay? Something like um, all white people are oppressors. Just to, you know, randomly come up with an example. Just off the top of my head. All white people are oppressors. That's a difficult position to defend in a debate, right? And as soon as you're attacked, the most obvious explanation or uh, argument against that uh, that premise is, are you telling somebody who was ra- who's raised in Appalachia uh, in a one room house with a wood floor or with a uh, uh, with a dirt floor, you're telling that person they've got privilege? Right. It's a hard premise to defend. So what do they do? They retreat back to the mott which is the easier-to-defend fortified structure, right? They'll run back there and they'll say, well, surely you're not suggesting that, you know, white people haven't had advantages that black people haven't had. 
Right now, surely you would probably agree with that throughout history in America. Right. That seems to be the case versus not. And what happens then is people are like, well, yeah, that's that's true, I guess. And then the debate is over. And as soon as the uh, the debate ends, then the, the person who was like, that's not true. What about Appalachian dirt floor uh, people? Right. They they leave the debate, at which point then you come down from the mot run out to the Bailey again, and you make your premises again. You make your statements again. That's the debate tactic. Say something that is harder to defend, and as soon as you are challenged, you retreat back to an easily defensible position, which then inspires your opponent to walk away from the debate, and then you get to advance again. Andrew Miller at foxnews.com with a rundown of all of the examples of how the Virginia Department of Education has, in fact, put critical race theory into their curriculum. Um, Cited one example of a presentation in 2015 when Terry McAuliffe was governor. Terry McAuliffe, by the way, is running around on the campaign stump saying lots of crazy lies. Um, And uh, one of them is that critical race theory is not being taught in schools. It's not part of any curriculum, yet his own Department of Education put out a presentation encouraging teachers to embrace critical race theory in order to re-engineer attitudes and belief systems. Um, Additionally, the superintendent memo 050-19 can be found on the site from February 2019 promoting CRT and the idea of white fragility. Uh, White fragility, by the way, this is the... uh, <clears throat> the work by that idiot Robin DiAngelo, whose uh, entire premise is essentially uh, that any criticism is okay against you as a white person. And if you object to that, then that is mere proof of your racism. Okay? It's a Kafka trap. Um, also, in 2019, under Democratic Governor Ralph Blackface Northam, Superintendent of Public Instruction... Okay, that's not fair. Not fair. You're right. It could be Ralph KKK wear, uh, uh, sheets wearing Northam, too. I mean, he could, be, he could have been the guy in the Klan outfit, too. I don't know. He never did say whether he was in the Klan robes or if he was in the blackface. One or the other. Anyway... Um, Superintendent of Public Instruction James Lane sent a memo to Virginia Public Schools endorsing, quote, foundations of critical race theory in education, called it an important tool that can, quote, further spur developments in education. No, no, it definitely sounds like an education system that's not on board with CRT, right? Um, Also this week, the Virginia Department of Education drew criticism for promoting a book telling teachers They, quote, must embrace theories such as critical race theory. But again, not part of the school system, folks. In June, officials in Loudoun County, Virginia, acknowledged that CRT influences their work. And in July, it was revealed that a Virginia school district spent more than $30,000 on critical race theory training for administrators. Right? It is happening. It is being taught. It is more than a Harvard uh, uh, legal theory. It's a pedagogy. It's a method of teaching. It's praxis or practice, if you will. 
praxis is just the Marxist term for stuff. But it is putting these theories into practice. Okay? It's the work. When you hear people talking about the work, this is what they're talking about. See? And for people who are not steeped in the left-wing lingo, in the jargon of Marxism and communism, you don't understand. Like, they're, they're, you, they're talking right around you. Because to them, these words mean things. And to most non-commies, <laughs> you don't even know what this stuff means. When you hear terms like dialectic, you don't know what that means. When you hear praxis, you don't know what that means. But to the left, they know what that means. And then they gaslight. And again, things to keep in mind about communists is that they lie. So when they tell you they're not doing stuff, you could assume that they are. Think China. Think China with the response to uh, the coronavirus. Right When the Chinese government, the communist government said, don't worry, don't worry, we got it under control, right? Should have known right then and there, lying. How do I know that? Because communists, right? It's a very helpful heuris- uh, heuristic, very helpful. It's a shorthand. If you're a communist, that equals liar. Okay, a survey found 34% of white students who applied to colleges and universities falsely claimed they were a racial minority on their application. 34%. So a third of all of the white students who apply for colleges and universities falsely claim minority status. Why would they do that? Why would white students claim to be a minority when they're not? Hmm. It's a brain buster. The publication, Intelligent, that's the name of it, I did not name it, found that 81% of students who faked minority status did so to improve their chances of getting accepted. Gee, you think? Yeah. So 80% of the third. Okay, so it's one-third, and this is just the third that admitted it, right? So one-third of the kids say they lied on their applications, claiming to be a partial minority when they're not, and of that one-third, 80% of them said they did it to get accepted to the college. What does that mean? It means they believe their chances are improved if they're not white. 50% of students who lie say they did it to get minority-focused financial aid. The, uh, the other half said they were hoping to run for the U.S. Senate in Massachusetts at some point in the future. Should that be left to the hands? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, this is what, if you are going to lie about your ethnic heritage you might have a future run for Senate in in store. Most students, 48%, claimed to be Native American on their application. That's That was hands down. <laughs> this is so Elizabeth Warren. It really is. 13% falsely marked that they were Latino, and that was the first sign right there that you know they're not really Latino because it's not Latino anymore. You would call yourself Latinx, right? Isn't that the deal? Latinx. Latinx, whatever. No, of course not. Latino folks don't like that term. They don't use that term. Um, 13%, 10% falsely claimed to be black. 9% said that they were Asian or Pacific Islander. For the most part, the survey found that white students tended to get away with their lies. About three in four of the white applicants who faked minority status on their applications got accepted to those colleges. So there is, dare I call it, 
an institutional benefit to not being white? Interesting. Also interesting, news. Now we go to the WBT News Center, Mark Garrison. Yes, Monica calls it the Elizabeth Warren effect. More than a third of white students lie about their race on college applications. No, I'm not sure. It does not. It does not say whether or not. You know, it doesn't say whether or not it helps them uh, get jobs on the Harvard Law faculty. That it does not. But the Elizabeth Warren effect. Yeah. Kids believe there is a benefit when applying to colleges. If they tell the colleges that they are not only white, that they are of a minority status in some way, shape, or form, that that increases the chances of them getting into the school. That's true, right? It helps you get financial aid. It'll help you get right. There is a benefit there. Now, you can say that the benefits should be there, right? This is the affirmative action um, argument for it. You can say that. That's a different argument, but it is undeniable that there is a benefit for having that status. Otherwise, people would not lie in order to have the status, right? So this study prompts a tweet from noted anti-racism lecturer, expert, critical race theorist and grifter, Ibram X. Ken- Sorry, did I say that? Yes. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, the man that Charlotte Mecklenburg schools paid tens of thousands of dollars, taxpayer money, to do a Zoom chat, a Q&A with Sonia Gant, formerly of uh, WCNC, right? Channel 36. And uh, she interviewed him. I have the audio. I watched the video. It's, I mean, she just kind of went through the book and it was, uh, you know. How great are you at this kind of interview? And, and look, I'm, I'm not saying that you're supposed to do a hard-hitting journalistic interview with your guest speaker, <laughs> right? You're paying him to come hang out and chat about his book that you just spent like a year reading, uh, doing the work. So Kendi sends out a tweet after seeing this study published, and uh, he tweets out, quote, More than a third of white students lied about their race on college applications, and about half of these applicants lied about being Native American. More than three-fourths of of these students who lied about their race were accepted. All right, so so his beef here is what? Because he's citing just the top-line results of the survey, and his beef is what? That they got accepted. And that that's proof of their privilege. <laughs> it's proof of racism. It's proof of systemic racism. This is what his, right, th- that's, that's obviously what the premise is. That's what he traffics in. So this is proof of how white people are taking advantage of institutional racism and discrimination. Now, according to Jessica Chasmar, story published at Yahoo.com, quote, Kendi's critics Pounced on the tweet, which is like, that's worse than seizing. It's worse than seizing Republicans. Like this is the scale. You know, this is the scale, right? Democrats react. Democrats respond. Republicans seize. And if they're really angry, 
and or racisty, then they pounce. And so apparently they pounced on Kendi's tweet, saying it undermined his life, his life's work, which of course it does. The post millennial, which first reported Kendi's tweet, asked, quote, if white privilege is such a decisive factor, then why do white students feel that their applications would do better if they pretended to be something other than white? And why would those applications then be so successful? Right. This is self-evidently true. Self-evidently true. It is clear on its face that this is true. That there is obviously a benefit to declaring oneself not fully white. Which is why the kids did it. Right? And again, set aside the arguments pro and con and why it's needed, all the quotas, all that stuff. It, it, it is irrelevant to me. The thing that matters here is what Kendi then does. First, he highlights this. And then he deletes the tweet after the pouncing of all the racists. He says, they lie about what I said to defend the lying of white college applicants. Nobody's defending the lying of the white college applicants here, though. Mr. Kendi or Dr. Kendi. Is he a doctor? Um, no one's defending the lying. We're pointing out, simply, that the lie proves there is a benefit to not being white, which is something that you deny, right? If institutional racism, systemic racism, right, is such a decisive factor, why would these kids lie about it? Wouldn't they just need to say, my name is Biff, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Connecticut, or I guess Vermont, Right? You just say, I'm from Vermont, my name is Biff, and uh, then you should get in. Easy enough, right? Unless, of course, there's some other reason why you would lie. So he, of course, then gaslights. He says, oh, you know, they're, they're lying about what I said. Nobody lied about what he said. They simply quoted you. He says, here is their tortured line of thinking. When white applicants think they have an advantage by lying about being a person of color, then that means they do have an advantage which means then structural racism doesn't exist. They imagine white people are disadvantaged while white people are on the higher end of nearly every racial disparity. They imagine black and native people have racial advantages at the same time black and native people are on the lowest end of nearly every racial disparity. See, and this is, and no pun intended here, but this is the problem with Kendi's black and white thinking. Right? It's... It ascribes to systemic racism every single outcome. And it's boring. Seriously, like it is a, it's a boring and it is a, uh, it's not a very academic way to approach analysis. You just say, well, okay, so... If I look at the results of any, you know, of a particular like college admissions, I look at college admissions, I find a racial disparity, therefore systemic racism. But if systemic racism is in fact the explanation, then there wouldn't be a reason for these kids to be lying. And they do. And they do. So nobody is uh, misconstruing what Kendi is saying. Kendi is gaslighting. And by the way, this is precisely why Ibram X. Kendi never debates anybody. 
John Locke Foundation out with a poll last week. If you think instruction in North Carolina's K-12 public schools is becoming more political, well, you are not alone. The October 2021 Civitas poll, so by the way, Civitas, North Carolina Civitas, NC Civitas, they joined up with the John Locke Foundation, so now it's all one organization. So the uh, Civitas poll found 75% of respondents said schools had become, quote, more political compared to 10% who thought schools stay the same and 3% who believe schools have become less political. Again, like, who's this 3%? (laughs) Ah, way less political now than it used to be. 12% of respondents undecided. So again, 75% say schools are more political. It's the conservatives. (laughs) Right? That, that's what the media and the Democrats, but I repeat myself, want us to believe. That's your argument, that it's the conservatives that have made schools more political. Right, because the conservatives are the ones in control of the schools. This gets back to who I mentioned earlier, Antonio Gramsci, the march through the institutions. Right, the, the, the concept is pretty simple. It's a Marxist concept that Gramsci tweaked. Right, to Marx, he said that the... Uh, the proletariat becomes class aware, right? They become aware that uh, that they are the oppressed class to the bourgeoisie, the the you know the the elites, the upper class over them, and so then they rebel, right? They have the revolution, the the, the workers' revolution. They put into place all of their uh, workers' paradise communist uh, policies, and yay, paradise utopia. Gramsci said. Again, he's a he's a Marxist, but this is why it's neo-Marxism from, you know, the 20s or 30s, whatever it was. Neo-Marxism in that he says they're not going to recognize uh, that they're of a different culture because the culture they are steeped in is dictated to them by the bourgeoisie. So they think it's their culture, but it's not their culture. They're just told it's their culture. But what, what are you even talking about, Pete? You're, you've lost me. Okay, how about, how about this? This is a very simplistic example. Patriotism. In America, modern day patriotism, right? The culture of patriotism, that culture, that idea, this cultural norm, right? That, you know, you go to Fourth of July parades and that sort of thing. We love America, stand for the national anthem, right? Patriotism, love America, America, right? All of that. Well, that's not really your culture. That's just what the bourgeoisie, that's what the rulers, the elites, that's what they are telling you the culture is. See, if you realized that's not your culture, it would be different and you would overthrow the oppressor class. Okay? So how do you change the workers' understanding of their culture? Well, you got to take over the cultural institutions. Well, what are the cultural institutions? Number one on the list, schools. Schools. Number two, arts. So you've got uh, movies, books, music, the arts. And you've got media, news, journalism, right? These are the big, insti- uh, the big cultural institutions and the churches, right? All of these are seeing this battle. Some are way far gone. But it's now starting to infect a lot of churches, and you're starting to see pushback in the churches, right? 
This critical race theory, these ideas, these concepts, this neo-Marxism comes from Gramsci. This is the long march through the institutions. That's what's occurring. This is These are not my words. This is not my assessment of the situation. This was the plan, their prediction. This was the endeavor. So, oh, here, and here you go. Um, well, all right, I'll hold off on that. Because there's the big global uh, warming thing going on. Well, all right, yeah, I'll... Uh, yeah, okay, here we go. This is Prince Charles. Get a load of this. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Fundamental economic transition, a military-style effort to force people to go along with it. I, I just saw somebody say, if this guy becomes king, like, yeah, like if his mom passes away and he becomes king, England will be a republic in no time flat. He'll- <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Joe Biden fell asleep. Uh, during the speech, <laughs> he totally fell asleep. He did the head, like, you can see his eyes got all droopy, and then, like, you know, his aide came over and finally woke him up, and he, like, rubbed his eyes. Yeah, totally asleep. Uh, David says, breathing patterns changed as he drifted deeper, and then he was saved by an aide, or his head would have bobbed very soon. Yeah, definitely. All right, so you've got people that are believing that the classrooms are becoming more and more politicized. And the reason why they believe the classrooms are becoming more politicized is because look, there's a rational explanation for why people believe this. It's because they are because they are becoming more politicized in June of 2021. So six months ago, when Civitas asked this very same question, 65% of respondents said the classrooms were more political. So the numbers getting Higher. It went from 65 now to 75%. Um, a 10 percentage point increase. Where did the numbers come from? The shift came in part from folks in the middle. In the middle who felt schools had largely stayed the same. So you had these more, you know, center of the road, moderate type people. They have now shifted their opinion. A review of the October poll cross tabs finds that 87% of Republicans believe classroom instruction is more political now, a full 66% of Democrats, and 74% of independents. You look at the racial breakdown, 76% of whites say it's more political, 70% of blacks agree, and 82% of Hispanics, and 91% of other voters. But according to leftists... This is all just because of right-wing propaganda and disinformation. That's the reason why clear majorities of every demographic agree. Please.